Hello, I'm Will Stein and welcome to Geography Island Jams. This podcast is in the same style as the BBC Radio 4 Desert Island Disc series, whereby each episode I ask my interviewee what eight songs, book and luxury item they would want to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. For rights reasons, the music has not been included in the podcast. You can find links to the eight songs on the LSE Geography and Environment website. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Geography Island Jams. My guest for this episode is Ben Groom. Ben has recently left the LSE, previously being a professor in Environment and Development Economics and the head of the Environmental Economics and Policy Cluster within the department. Ben grew up in a village just outside of Cambridge, then moved to Sheffield to complete an undergraduate degree in economics, after which he did his master's in environmental and resource economics at UCL, later followed by a PhD in economics also at UCL. His research has focused on the welfare analysis of public policies that have long-term welfare effects. In particular, he has worked on the detriments of the social discount rate and empirical measures of intergenerational and intragenerational fairness. Ben's new position is Dragon Capital Chair of Biodiversity Economics at the University of Exeter, where he will lead a £1.6 million partnership between the University of Exeter and Dragon Capital. So welcome, Ben. Thank you. Quite an introduction. (laughs) I try my best. To to start, um, you mentioned to me at the last staff pub quiz that you started playing the piano. My first question is what made you want to start learning now? Oh gosh, yeah, I guess lots of different things. Um, one of which I, I wanted to um, wanted to lead from the front, as it were, in my own household. So my daughter started playing the piano and then she gave up. And then my youngest daughter um started playing or I wanted her to start playing so I thought and we had this piano in the corner of the room which we'd, we'd inherited from our neighbors and I thought okay somebody has to start playing this thing <laughs> so I so I did <laughs> and uh, yeah it's been I tell you what it's really pushed me out of my comfort zone learning something you know because in you know being doing my job you're supposed to be the one who knows things and yeah, I'm, I was on the other end of the teaching uh, relationship there. Yeah, so I really, really started from the bottom, uh, the lowest possible level. Uh, yeah, because you mentioned that the other people in your class aren't of similar age. Oh God, yeah. Well, so my my the teacher does these really nice kind of concerts where he brings all of her students together and, and they play a piece and everyone claps and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so you can imagine me where with sort of people ranging from the age of about five or six up to sort of 14 or something like that. And then you know, go along the road and then there's me and then there's these other kids and I'm literally playing row, row, row your boat or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, it's just quite a sobering <laughs> and uh, humbling experience. I mean, some of those kids are amazing, you know, so, so um, yeah, inspirational. Yeah, so that, that's that's been an experience, and also it's been an experience for my family who have to listen to me practicing, right? So they that's um, I suppose it keeps you occupied during lockdown. It's it's a bit of a release now. Actually, now I can sort of knock a few tunes out. It's uh, it's something that gets you away from working, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, pardon the pun, but on that note, can you tell me about the first song you'll be taking with you? 
Right, yeah, this is this definitely falls under the category of old man rock. <laughs> this song, <laughs> it's uh, it's money by Pink Floyd, and um, so that this this basically just reminds me of growing up in Cambridge. So the members of Pink Floyd went to the same school as me, not at the same time, but um, you know, many years before. So that was sort of discussed a bit. My brothers are like ten years older than me, so when I was growing up. Uh, six or whatever six or seven i can remember listening to this record you know dark side of the moon and then they when they went off to university and stuff they they left a bunch of records behind and and i sort of started rifling through them and playing them and so i re sort of rediscovered them and listened to them again and it was like oh yeah i remember that and it's i remember this one love this and you kind of like them because they remind you of that good time when you were a kid and you know with the brothers and it was like you know everything was kind of easy and and sweet and um anyway and i'd rediscover it again as an old man and i and this is one i would definitely need something to rock out to and this is the one that i would rock out to on the um on the desert island or wherever it is i'm stuck yeah so yeah it reminds me of home it reminds me of my brothers and stuff well that leads me quite nicely into the next few questions so you spent your childhood growing up just outside cambridge whereabouts mm. did you grow up it's a village called Bottisham, which is sort of equidistant between Newmarket, there where they where the famous race horse race uh, horse racing takes place and Cambridge. So yeah, so it's a, a village, it probably has like twenty thousand people in it maybe now, but when I was there fewer. Um yeah, agriculture all the way around, flat as hell. <laughs> Pretty nondescript. And then do you have yeah. any funny or mischievous stories from your time there? So yeah, loads, but none, hardly any can be repeated. But uh, here's one from here's one from school though, um, which which my friends from school will remember. So I when I did my GCSEs, I did um, I did photography with one of the teachers there called Ron Nix. He was he he was there. He taught my brother, who's ten years older than me, so he's been there for years, and he's a brilliant, really uh, really good art teacher. And he was very relaxed about what we did in the art room and stuff like that. So and I did photography. And he would let us have access to the dark room and we would just we'd go out, take our pictures, go back to the dark room and develop these pictures and things like that, even like after school and stuff like that. So anyway, one time after school, I went, I went mucking around the dark room, developing some pictures and stuff like that. And then I had to go out. I was going out to, I don't know, somewhere in Cambridge that, that night. And I left and I left the tap running in the in the sink yeah washing these pictures over sort of floating around and of course at one point one of the pictures just goes over the <laughs> over the thing and and the and the you know the, the water level went up and the overflow was blocked for some reason yeah so all night the tap was running and when i when i got to school the next day <laughs> you know there was a sort of a, a group of teachers waiting for me oh. with like a mop <laughs> and stuff like that and that was there was a lot of damage and uh bless bless old ron nix he never really he never really told me off. he must have been super angry but he never really told me off uh about it anyway yeah was so that room? was super embarrassing um mistake was the room salvageable there was uh, <laughs> was there were certain things that were salvageable and certain other things which weren't let's put it that way oh, wow. uh yeah so it was yeah, that was a bad one. That one sort of keeps me up at night uh, occasionally. <laughs> you know? Oh, no, that. God, that would be... Oh, I can't even imagine that, to be honest. 
It's like, you know, do you think you've left the oven on and yeah yeah it's what exactly one of those moments and it, but it never occurred to me so you yeah. know never i was in that kind of wild sort of thing it never occurred to me that i could do that, that anything could go wrong you know uh anyway there you go can you now tell me about the second song you'll be taking with you uh which one is that that's the that's uh rodrigo yeah you tell me yeah um it's called Capriccio Arabe, right? So, I mean, I, I had to look the name up, to be honest with you. But I, I just remember the, the tune. Um, and again, this is about, this is about my mum my and dad, actually. When, when I was growing up in Cambridge, my dad used to make speakers, uh, you know, for hi-fi and stuff. He really loved hi-fi. He had all of this oh. kind of, he used to make amplifiers and little valves and stuff like that. And then he'd make the speakers as well. And he, um, and then once he'd made, the speakers were massive. Right, in the end of the sort of different dimensions and you know he was really really into it you know and then so then of course he would play spectacular music on these speakers and and so I'm not I'm not particularly cultured when it comes to classical music or anything like that but this this piece of music just transports me straight back to those times and will always remind me of you know my parents and, and growing up uh, and it's such a I mean, I don't know if you've listened to it, but anyhow, it's such a um, an emotive sound with a classical Spanish guitar. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a great one, really good. So um, my next few questions are about the LSE. How long were you at the LSE for? When did you start again? I started in 2012. Yeah, I came over um, from SOAS uh, in 2012, and I came in. I was senior lecturer at SOAS, and I came down to the lecturer level at, at the LSE. And that was actually felt like a really big decision. It was like, oh, shall I, shall I? Looking back, I mean, absolute no-brainer, of course. But um, so yeah, that's 2012, and then. Can you talk me through the positions you've had? Um, uh, that won't take long. That's that, <laughs> that's it, I think. So I was at the Department of Economics at SOAS. Okay. And then, and then, I mean, other than sort of teaching positions at UCL and so on, when I was doing a PhD, uh, PhD there. Um, and so that's a very interesting economics department. I always talk about it and I learned a lot from that. Um, you know, they're much more heterodox than, than my training and, um, econ you know, the sort of mainstream economics uh, at SOAS. So it's sort of post-Keynesian Marxist uh, approaches to economics and a lot of critique of neoclassical theory there, which is, you know, the stuff I was taught in. And it was a bigger eye-opener working at SOAS just to, just to get that because there was really no discussion of methodology when i learned economics it was you, you know this is the mainstream here's the maths off you go sort of thing and then at uh, soas it was all about breaking that down and, and sort of um critiquing all of the little assumptions everything you know how can we be thinking this way was the sort of thing and then i was a weird kind of mainstream guy there um yeah so I learned a lot from that. That was that was a great. I still have friends there and um, from there, and, and it was it was a fun time. And then and then LSE, you know, Department of Geography. It's been great. I mean, it's such as you know, it's such a brilliant department um, that I, I doubt it can ever. You know, that experience can be repeated anywhere else. Actually, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah. What would you say you enjoy most about lecturing? Ah, you know, I find it extremely nerve-wracking, right? And 
I, I, on some level, I guess it's maybe actors feel this way as well. Like they sort of love the scrutiny and yet they hate the scrutiny. And, and so it's a very double-edged thing for me. Um, but the thing, um, it's the storytelling part. You know, when you get the storytelling right in a lecture, it's a fantastic thing. And, and, you, and when you know people are with you and uh, that, that, that's nothing like it. When it goes wrong, it's just the worst thing ever, you know. When and, and quite often, but my 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 lecturing is has you know there's a great deal of variation in the quality. I would say <laughs> sometimes I hit the heights and other times the depths. So and I recognise the depths. So that's the point. Um, it, it's um, it, it's it's a feel. You feel I feel really bad about that afterwards. So it's it's one of the, it's really double edged the whole process for me. I find it. Anyway, I find it tough, but yeah, the, the storytelling and when you see everybody's engaged and the laughs, oh my God, we've had some laughs. This this year in particular, we had, shall I tell you a story about this? Go on. Um, so yeah, I was explaining a paper, it was this in econometrics, right? So you were trying to, uh, I was giving an example of a randomized controlled trial that one of my colleagues from before, who was at the department, uh, um, Salvatore Di Falco, had done. And what he did was he, he randomly assigned new varieties of seeds, which were called cowpea seeds, to one set of farmers and then the, the traditional varieties to another. And it was trying to find out whether there was any kind of impact of these new varieties. And they're painted purple, these new varieties. But what he did, which was so clever, was these new varieties, he actually did a placebo. So he painted some of the traditional varieties purple and told the people that these were new varieties. So you could compare them in a, in a kind of placebo sense, how effective. Anyway, mm. the purple ones were better than the non-purple ones, but there's no difference between. And so I was explaining this and I was saying, look, and the, cow, and the purple cowpea did this and, and, the, and, the, and the traditional... And then everyone's looking at me really, really blankly. And then someone puts their hand up at the back and says, but, but what, how do you paint cow pea purple? You know, and, <laughs> and it suddenly dawned on me that they, they, they thought I was talking about cow pea, you know, not, not seeds, but, you know, cow pea. <laughs> and I've been going on about this for about five minutes. And <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, and so that uh, that is one of the most memorable balls-ups uh, ever. And we had a very good laugh about it in the, in the, in the lecture. <laughs> I must admit, you got me there. You're halfway this story. I thought, wait a minute, have I missed something here? But, yeah, um... exactly. Well, there you go. I, you know, just, you've got to be very clear. Uh, it reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you now tell me about the third song you're going to be taking with you? Uh, this is... Um, this is Linton Crazy Johnson, uh, Time Come, yeah, so, wow, yeah, so you can imagine, like, yeah, I've just told you a little bit about where I grew up, village in the countryside, and, and so on, and um, so, yeah, difficult to explain this without looking, sounding like a complete idiot, but basically, you know, it was not a very diverse upbringing, you know, my, you know, the fact, the fact that my parents had a sort of northern accent was sort of, the the most kind of interesting thing where I you know where I grew up in a way, um, and so during the eighties, of course, you see on TV a lot of um, pictures of the the riots, the Brixton riots, and the, just the, uh, the the antipathy between black people and the police, and it's sort of funneled to you through the TV and everything like that. And then when I was probably about thirteen 
one of my friends lent me this record and I was listening to it. And I was the, the first thing that got me into it was just the, the music, right? The music is it's amazing, powerful reggae music, right? And then, and, the, and then you start listening to the lyrics and it sort of explains to you what the hell is going on there in a way that had never ever been explained to me before, right? It's from the perspective of, of, of Linton Crazy Johnson, who lives in Brixton. Um, I understand. One of my friends at SOAS went to school with him, so I, I sort of uh, understand the whereabouts he grew up. Explains that experience of black people. The whole album, this is from The Forces of Victory. There was one before called Dread Beaten Blood. It's, it explains like, it's like a catalogue of events that happened to black people at the hands of the police in the 80s, 70s and 80s and uh, just the um, embodiment of racism and so on and and you know this is kind of all new to me in a way you know I, how would i know this uh, so so it's a super i'm not a very political person by the way but this was um this was like a an important sort of you know, educational experience from a person who grew up in a rural area. You know, so listen to it. It's the the thing. The thing you take away from it is never. Um, it's very angry, right? It's a very very angry song, but it's not punk anger as like you know, mm. like uh, Sex Pistols anger or anything like. It's not nihilistic anger. It's just this has happened to me, and I'm angry, and and it's really powerful. So my next question is, so as well as being the cluster head and lecturer, you're also a researcher. Maybe I've misread this, but how does the social discount rate relate or have a, a relationship with like deforestation or biodiversity loss? Like what is the relationship with that? Is it? Well, yeah, you need to think about a government who, who is, um, or any planner, in fact, who's just thinking about, well, you know, should we or shouldn't we invest in this particular project, right? Because there are lots of projects that governments can invest in and 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 they obviously want to maximize some kind of welfare you know so social welfare so the question is you know which one of these projects will do it if you don't put much weight on the future then you basically knock out all of those projects which have any returns way in the future and 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 so the sort of the old methodologies for for cost benefit analysis just put very little weight on slow return type projects even if those returns were you know for a very very long time for all future generations it, they didn't count for anything so you know you talk you you adjust you you ask people you research the weights that people are ex that ought to be in theory and in practice put on these future generations and that can reorientate what governments might the decisions that governments might make towards more sustainable and longer term investments so it's that it's like a really, it's just like a number effectively mm. that you, you crank up or down based on the you know scientific research and and that affects how governments make their decisions that's a kind of a simplified explanation of that thing that's why it's so important can you now tell me about the fourth song you're going to be taking with you it's uh, it's Simand, i think um and and the song is called dove and it's a very um self-indulgent uh tune right but uh, Simanda like um they're from the mid 70s a lot of a lot of the music I listen to is um and this this is about when I was at university and I met my my girlfriend there who's now my wife um my, my wife I'm her husband <laughs> um 
yeah so she introduced me to this music and it's like it's an english in a sense english um that's how they, that's how it was sold to me you know back in those days um funk band you know and you think about funk you think oh it's 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 a, it's a u.s thing well here's a, this is a brilliant brilliant funk band but the thing i like about them is they're they're not that tight they're not like james brown everything punchy and yeah, it, there's a lot of kind of slack uh, there i'd say uh, but this tune reminds me basically it reminds me of falling in love uh, yeah. it reminds me of those long evenings i spent with 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 you know with my with my wife um getting to know her you know just when you it's quite an eerie tune so it's sort of uh, it captures those sort of early hours type um of the morning where everything is sort of a slightly uh, you know slightly distorted because of the night you just had and so it's really you know beautiful period of my life uh and yeah it's i know it's like 12 minutes long beautiful you'll you'll recognize it because it's sampled a lot by you know by other like a lot of hip-hop artists actually like really? and things like that yeah yeah so so yeah that's all that's in there for it's a really uh, my wife introduced me to that and i love that band i went to see them at the festival a few years ago and i think half of them were dead but they they really they did capture the sound they have a very particular sound so so yeah it's a good one it's a good one i know you've got quite the double act with charlie palmer when did you first meet charlie at ucl um i think when we when i i think if i remember well uh it was when i was just started out on my my phd and he was doing some research assistance for susanna and giles who were also at ucl at that point yes yeah, so i met charlie that, that must have been like year 2000 then when i got back from namibia started my phd around about then and yeah so we sort of come in to and out of each other's sort of spheres we started writing papers together when i was at soas we sort of occasionally bump into each other at gigs uh quite independently you know that sort of thing um and then we're in the same department so it's it's been yeah long long time and people get us mixed up uh, <laughs> even in the department i must admit i did at the beginning when i yeah yeah they do up. it's sort of yeah so i've tried to grow the hair out and stuff like that to you know <laughs> get your own identity myself, what about do you have any favorite moments or stories for all the years of charlie uh yes i do and this <laughs> this was um there have been a number um but the best one was in 2006 we went to the world congress i think this is really where we cemented our um our friendship actually in japan it's at kyoto uh, the world congress of um environmental and resource economists you can imagine and it was it was held in the same place that the kyoto protocol was was signed that if i remember well and yeah we went out um we went out afterwards with a got with a with a, an academic from birmingham called rob elliott who was still friends with it as well and we went out partying in kyoto um we <laughs> anyway cut a long story short next thing you know it's 6 a.m and charlie has to catch a train to to tokyo uh at like 8 a.m or something like that so we're sort of you know, running, he's running down. The, he, well, he always used to wear nice suits and stuff. So he's sort of flapping down the street in a nice suit. 
has to check out of his hotel. Um, anyway, we had a delightful time, but much laughter on that evening. Yeah. Listening to, funny enough, listening to old man rock music, because we went to a bar called the Ing Bar. It's called the Ing Bar because it was rock-ing. Yeah. And they had a, a, a row of vinyl on the, on the wall, including an album that I, my brother gave to me called uh, Deep Purple, Made in Japan. So it's a live album from Japan. So we, I said, oh, you've got to play that since we're in Japan and everything. And, uh, and it just went on. It doesn't sound very funny. I, I have to miss out most of the interesting parts. Uh, yeah, but course. it was a grand old night and um, unforgettable. Yeah. Well, did he make the train in the end? He did. He did. And then when he's on, <laughs> you can ask him how that went. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's how I leave that story for him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, can you now tell me about the fifth song you'll be taking with you? So this is one. This is the Crusaders, and it's called Turkish Black. And this is just because I like jazz uh, music these days. Uh, but it was on a uh, on a compilation uh, record, vinyl record, that one of my friends, one of my friends' friends, so an acquaintance of mine, back in the early, no, back in the nineties, that people started pumping out bootleg vinyl of lots of collections of funk and jazz and stuff like that. And this was on one of those. Um, they were called Uptight and Out of Sight. There was like five of them, these records. And on the first one, it's, it's, on, that, it's on that record. And as a, as a piece of jazz music, I just love the way that it, um, it, it's sort of quite technical. It takes off. Uh, it has a wonderful swing to it. And it has the, the most baffling trombone solo. Uh, and so it will remind, in terms of memory and stuff like that, it will remind me again, university, that period of time, was, it really introduced me to jazz and funk and all that kind of music, uh, that period of time. So it, it's, that's what it's about. Yeah, it's a joyful, joyful sound, this one. You did your undergrad at Sheffield. Did you enjoy your time at Sheffield? Do you have any fun stories from studying there? Uh, yeah, I did like Sheffield. I went to Sheffield, I think, if my memory serves, right, so this this might be fabrication, but I, I did get an offer on the undergraduate at the LSE in economics. Um, oh. But I didn't go because I was really into rock climbing at the time, and I wanted to go where the rock climbing was. And so I went to Sheffield. I had some friends up there anyway, because that's where the sort of the climbing, one of the climbing scenes in Sheffield. So I went there. So my, my you know, my best memories of Sheffield are um, miraculously going to a lot of lectures, actually. But uh, also, those aren't the best memories, but but just going climbing, having the Peak District on your doorstep and then North Yorkshire, like an hour away, you limestone crags, gritstone, a whole bunch of people to go climbing with whenever you wanted. That, that's, I, I miss that. You know. Plus, I met my wife there, so that, that, that's also... Yeah, that, that I'm sure that's a, a big, a long, long-lasting uh, joy from that. Obviously, moving on to your sixth song now. Uh, well, if you've got the list in front of you, I can't, I can't bloody remember now what it, what it is. The sixth one, so classic, classic me. Oh, I found uh, it. It's funny I mean, how, how I'm now. I'm going to be reading you the song names. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just as I said, it's quite difficult to do this, uh, and a lot came through my mind, and I can't okay, remember which so, one So that means your your sixth song is. Um, Chime by Orbital. 
Oh yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. So again, this is this is like this could have been something else. This could have been, you know, but I just wanted something to capture that period of time. You can't grow up when I've grown up and escape dance music. And you know, you'd have to have been living in a cave somewhere to do that. And so a lot of my time at Sheffield and afterwards, so I was yeah, going out listening to dance music. It was was fun. You know, it's a lot of fun. But this this reminds me just of one really nice moment when I was with with Anna and a group of friends from Sheffield. I think it's probably 1994, something like that, 95 perhaps. Anyway, I, we saw Orbital play. We had a grand old time. It was, I don't let go very often. That's the thing. I, I, I'm quite, a, you know, risk averse type of person. So it, it just reminds me of uh, feeling relaxed and like letting go and listening to this music. And, it, it, you know, there is a nice technical edge to the to this type of techno music, basically, which I quite enjoy too. Yeah, chime. Yeah, you're right. That's a good one. So, as I mentioned, you're becoming the Dragon Capital Chair of Biodiversity mm. Economics at Exeter. Yeah. Can you tell me more about what what that means? What is? <clears throat> well, um, I. Uh, you know, one of my interests has always been in biodiversity. I, I've been the sort of um, scientific uh, co-chair of the Bioecon Network in Europe, which is a, a which has expanded now to the globally sort of thing, which is a very loose kind of ragtag network of people of economists who work on biodiversity. Uh, and I've organised many conferences with my colleagues Andreas Contolian at Cambridge and and, um, and others. And so this was an opportunity to really focus in on, on, on biodiversity economics. And the, the work with Charlie on deforestation, of course, is, relates to that because most of the world's biodiversity is located in forests. Uh, um, you know, one shouldn't ignore marine environments, of course, but my, my experiences have been in forests. The work, other work with Charlie as well is on sort of UK biodiversity on birds and how agricultural um, land uses affect that that measure of biodiversity and so on so yeah this project is really about focusing in on what works in terms of biodiversity conservation looking at which kind of public and and other policies will work in terms of that but also in terms of on the financial side so in climate change you've seen um things like the transition pathway initiative which the grantham institute has has uh, implemented which is basically asking firms to sign up disclose their carbon uh, emissions and how they fit in with the Paris Agreement and uh, what this project sort of wants to do although it's it's um, doing something like the TPI be hugely ambitious for this but I mean to put in place something similar for biodiversity to try and work out how the financial sector can take into account um, its effect on biodiversity and maybe move capital away from those those activities which are um, which are um, detrimental to biodiversity, either through land uses or overfishing or, or whatever it might be. At the moment, those signals just aren't there in the financial sector. It's really difficult. And so it's going to be exciting. It's really exciting. I get to work on the stuff, you know, biodiversity related work, which I'm really interested in. And I get to kind of look into this new area in finance. And it's a great time to be doing stuff in biodiversity. You know, the, the Treasury at the moment have the Dasgupta report, part of Dasgupta, very famous resource economist, economist, really, writing a report for the Treasury at the moment. We have the IPBES, which is like the IPCC for, for um, biodiversity. 
they're writing a, a report which we're going to contribute to in terms of um, uh, the values. I think the things we were talking about before, you know, what, what are the values that we can really deploy here? Um, and you've got the CBD, the Conventional Biodiversity COP, uh, which is happening next year. And biodiversity is becoming um, recognized as the kind of the next crisis on the, on the horizon, you know. It's strongly related with climate change, but it's a separate thing in its own right as well. So, so yeah, the role is sort of really about that, and, and um, I'm very excited about it. Thanks for yeah. asking. So now, uh, moving on to the seventh song, can you tell me what it is and any reasons why? Uh, this is Felakuti and and Water No Get Enemy. And, uh, I mean, I, I was actually a bit of a latecomer to Felakuti, um, uh, yeah, I mean he's he, you know he's dead now and uh, did most of his stuff in the sixties and seventies and stuff. Anyway, um, I found my friend had lots of records. He moved house once. This is back in the early two thousands, and he left uh, literally two thousand records in my house while he was moving. So I sort of gradually rifled through them, and I found this box set of Felakuti. And then at that point, just thought, what? How have I missed this? How is this? passed me by for 30 years yeah so the the thing about it is it's the rhythms are amazing the the um it's just all about the groove right it's all about the groove again he's not like a virtuoso saxophonist or anything like that but he's a the, the groove is just uh amazing you know it just carries you along anyway later on after a while you start thinking what are the lyrics all about what does this mean anyway it turns out that this is a song about black power um, and his perspective on the civil rights movement in, in the US. And, and the song basically talks about water and all of the things that water does for you. Uh, you know, if you want to make soup, <laughs> you know, literally it's like this. You, if you want to make soup, you need some water. If you want to cool down, you need some water. <laughs> um, you know, things like that. And, just, and, and he's talking, and this is just a metaphor for fairness and civil rights and all of this so this this so essential that it can't have an enemy is the basic idea i think i've explained that well it's, it's sort of a uh, someone had to explain it to me very recently about all this but it's really interesting anyway above all just a really groovy brilliant brilliant tune brilliant tune yeah it's, it's quite a joyous session fab and then final question what do you think you're going to miss most about the lse That is actually a lot easier than I'm making out. Um, it's just going to be the the camaraderie of the of the people in the in the department. Actually, I think I said this before. It's not it's not easy to find. I understand anyhow. I've been very lucky, but I mean, it's not easy. I think to find somewhere to work where 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 everyone sort of you know by and large you know ninety five percent of the time pulling in the same direction and and have have similar outlooks and interesting things to say and you can learn from them and and actually have a laugh as well you know um yeah i'm gonna miss a lot of the banter with with um with you guys with louise and sam and you lot i mean that that was fun because that that really this is one thing about lockdown which which you suddenly realize is that those having a day that's interspersed with those moments of just silliness and interact and catching up oh, what did you do this weekend that sort of thing wow those are just those are great things
things. And so, yeah, I'm going to miss that. I felt like I knew everyone well, and that, that puts me, it makes me feel like I'm in a good place when I feel like I know people. So I'm, I'm really going to miss that. Really going to miss it. And Fab, so now moving on to your eighth and final song. Yeah, this is a new one for me. Uh, this is like uh, very recent, I think. And um, this is Rosalia and uh, it's called Malamente, which um, I don't know, it's just such a hypnotic tune. Um, I think it's, she's a sort of Marmite musician in Spain. You either love her or hate her. And, but the thing I like about this, I mean, the, 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 she has a beautiful voice, right? But it's a retake on on sort of flamenco music, kind of traditional flamenco music, and it, and it really uh, anyway for me. I mean, like I say, I'm not really an expert on music or anything like that. But I'm just explaining my experience here. But for me, it kind of brings it up to date. It's it's um, it's quite a haunting uh, tune. Um, and then the sort of backdrop to this her her music is that this was from her PhD thesis, right? So her album, in fact, is, is her PhD thesis, uh, which was a kind of a re you know reinventing flamenco music and so on. So it, there's some footage of her um, at Glastonbury, which I saw on TV, and um, it's a really really awesome performance as well. This particular song, so. Um, and my wife is half Spanish. I didn't know if I mentioned this, but uh, and we spent a lot of time in Spain. And this song sort of captures a, a lot of that sort of spirit that we shared together over the past few years. So it's it's sort of about that as well. And by the way, um, that whole thing with Spain, we, my wife and I have spent a lot of time, uh, Anna and I in Spain together, that sort of has meant that I can reinterpret the Rodrigo stuff as well, which was very much part of my childhood, but now sort of has a broader meaning uh, altogether. So, so the whole kind of set fits fits together for me. The whole all the eight songs sort of fit together around those themes, the things that I find important in life. Very nice. So now moving on to the final section. So the first part of it is, as I think I've let you know you're allowed to take with you the Bible, the, the beverage report, and a book of your choice. What is the book you're going to be taking with you? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. People always say, people usually sort of say, oh, I want to take this because I, and then, and I think, why do you want to take that? You've read it before, right? <laughs> so I was sort of torn here. I really don't know. I, so, book that I've read before that I really liked, if that's what the question is about. I really like Laurie Lee, right? Um, Laurie Lee wrote a book called I, What I Stepped Out One Midsummer's Morning or something like that. And it's about his um, experiences going from England to through Spain just before the Spanish Civil War. And it's just such a, the way he writes is just incredible, I think. It's, you, you're like drinking in the descriptions of, of, England, of England, which is horrific, actually, <laughs> and, and Spain, which is just rich and beautiful, you know. So if, if a, a book that I've read before, it would be that. A book that I've not read before, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually like, um, I actually like, um, I like problem solving and I do like my work. I do like my, the things I research. So I put on the list there, I put this, um, um, a colleague from the US called Matt Adler, who's quite, you know, he's quite a theorist. He's written his textbook on social welfare functions, which is sort of what I work on. 
and it's got numerical like problems and stuff at the back and, and hopefully solutions <laughs> uh i could really handle just sitting down and trying to work all of those out um that, that, that sort of thing would keep me going yeah perfect so then if you had to choose one i take it you're going to go for the problem sets I would. Yeah, I think I would, because I can remember the, I can just remember the feeling of reading the other book uh, yeah. and that would keep me going. You know. And then finally, the luxury items. So this might be controversial, but I don't know if I said, but you, you mentioned two items, but I'm going to have to narrow you down to one, I'm afraid. You, you yeah. Okay. So yeah, the luxury. Yeah. What, so what I, what did I put? I put, I, I put I think, a piano, didn't I? Piano and the rock climbing wall. <laughs> so the principle here is I, I need a toy i need a toy to play with and it could it could just it could be a football actually um just something that that i can sort of get my teeth in and take my mind off um things you know i really like climbing but climbing will oh, christ you know piano yeah I, I could definitely tinkle away um but just i could just as well be i'm one of those people who like a uh, sometimes with like a dog with a bone once i get into something i just keep on doing it keep on doing it and just doing keepy ups with the football would also serve that purpose as well so i i just need a toy maybe it's a mountain bike you know i could take a mountain bike that would keep me going it's just something like that so so let's say a football oh really wow yeah it's really like that yeah yeah well I guess that's it. Thank you very much, Ben, for telling me about your Geography Island Jams. I'm, I'm, uh, I'll be honest with you, I always hoped somebody would ask me. <laughs> now you've had the chance. That's uh, amazing. Not everyone can say that. Thank you.